Good morning. morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study, for the beautiful sunshine outside, for the truth about your kingdom of love. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to say hi to our new friends in Houston. I was in Houston last week speaking at a Spanish church in Houston, and that was, was a great experience. Everything I, I presented had to be translated, and so we had some fun time with that. We have now three um, presentations on our website that are in um, Spanish, well, they're in me speaking English and then a Spanish translator translating. So they're on our website for if you know anybody who spe- doesn't speak English, speak Spanish, we now have three presentations they can watch on our website. And I, I received the following email. Um, in the mail, and I, I like to share these with you since they come in from time to time. It says, uh, bedtime again. This is from a, an online listener from Canada. It says, bedtime again, and I've got the computer tuned to your station to, uh, to Bible study discussions. I turn it on, crawl into bed, and be asleep in 10 minutes. <laughs> Pause. You might interpret that as an insult, as a suggestion that your discussions are boring or sophophoric in nature, but not so. It is such a comfort to know that God is not standing by waiting to record every misdeed, every selfish thought. I grew up imagining myself in the in that famous art piece, the Ten Commandments looming over the scene, God judging me, Jesus standing beside me. How, uh, but how could he stand beside me when I betrayed him so many times? Your totally sensible message that God is the great physician, anxious to heal me, anxious to pick me up when I fall, anxious to change my mindset so that I will turn from... Uh, so that what's turn from loving self to loving others is such a comforting message. I need not fear the judgment day any more than I need to fear going to my earthly physician. Having fallen asleep within 10 minutes, I often awaken at 3 or 4 and return and retune the discussion, uh, sometimes doing that several times during the night until by morning I stay awake listening to the whole wonderful healing and encouraging message. Not only do the discussions encourage me, but now I read the Bible and the little red books with a totally different mindset. So thank you for your ministry and thank you to those who make it possible and for, and for the restful sleeps I now enjoy. <laughs> good night and good bless. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. Uh, so we're doing lesson number four in the quarterly, the book of Matthew. And the title is Get Up and Walk Faith and Healing. The first paragraph, it says, if you made a list of what you most dreaded in life, what would it look like? For many of us, the list would include a family member dying or even you, yourself dying. And while that's certainly understandable, think about just how earth-centered that is. It's all about our, our lives now. Is it really and truly what we ought to dread most, the loss of life on earth, especially when it never lasts that long anyway? Have you ever struggled with the fear of death? If you have, then you're human. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children... 14 and 15, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who live all their lives held in the slavery of their fear of death. That's the, that's the whole human race. How does the question that we want to explore this morning is, how does the death, the death of Christ free us from the fear of death? As you contemplate that, did you know that the fear of death is what caused or triggered the entire religion of Buddhism? The entire religion is based on that fear. Buddha, and you can read it in any, any historical account of the whole the history of the original Buddha, left the confines of his luxurious apartments, and for the first time in his life, he encounters a decrepit old man, 
Then he encounters a severely ill man. And then he encounters a corpse being carried on a funeral pier by mourners. And Buddha realizes his own mortality, experiences overwhelming fear of death. And what does he do in response to his fear of death? Eastern meditation. He begins Eastern meditation to try to escape the fear of death. And the Eastern meditation, as you know, we we described in our seminars and our books, causes an altered brain process where you deactivate or impair or slow left cortex function over to overactivate right cortex function. You get this artificial state of disconnection with reality around you, a state of nirvana it is described in the practitioners, and they get this feeling of peace that comes over them. Does Eastern meditation, however, actually change what is wrong that causes death? Does it fix the problem that, that, that incites death in the first place? No, but billions of people are practicing this form of meditation as a way of running and escaping their fear of death. Did Jesus also face the fear of death? Not just face death, face the fear of death. When did Jesus face the fear of death? Yeah, in Gethsemane, that's right. It says in uh, Matthew 26, 38 and 39, Jesus said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it's possible, may may, uh, this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What did Jesus do when he faced death and the fear of death? Did he turn to an inward, emptying, Meditation focus? He talked to his father, but he did more. Yes, he did. He absolutely talked to his father. Reached out, poured his heart out, sorry for sure. But he also, did Jesus have to make a choice? Did Jesus realize why humanity faced death? See, I don't think Buddha understood why. He just understood it did. I think Jesus understood why humanity faced death. And therefore, Jesus was equipped to do something about it. Buddha wasn't. Why does humanity face death? What's the reason humanity faces death? The wages of sin. The wages of sin. That's, that's, uh, unpack that. What does that mean? What is sin? Separation from the life giver. Okay, we're getting, we're getting closer now. Separation from the life sustainer. Is the separation from the life sustainer connected to what was said over here? Wages of sin. Are they connected in some way? How are they connected? How? Coming out of harmony with the design law. Sin, scriptures by sin is lawlessness. Okay. And he's been out of harmony with design law. So God constructed life to operate in certain parameters. Some call that his law. His design for life. The law of love, as we've talked about in here before. How life is constructed. Sin is transgression, or stepping out of harmony with how it's designed. And if you step out of harmony with that design, what happens? You die. You've damaged yourself and you die. So Christ understood that the condition of humankind was deviant from the way he built it in Eden. It's not running like it was designed in Eden to run. And this condition is terminal. Thus the Bible describes it in words like, we are dead in trespass and sin. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition, deviant from design, which without intervention results in death. This is our condition. Jesus understood that. Jesus had an option that Buddha didn't have. What was his option? 
He had th- Jesus actually was faced with three choices, three options. One he would never do. He was faced with it the first time in the, in the wilderness, and that was surrender to the devil. That was an option for him. He could have made the choice. He would never make it. But that was an option. So the other two are the more viable options. What are the other two options that were left to him and he faced in Gethsemane? Go home to his father. He was sinless. What was happening to him wasn't something that was a result of his own actions, his own conduct, his own choices. The suffering he was facing wasn't because he personally needed to face the suffering for him to personally save himself. He could have said, no, I'm going home. That was one option, going home to, going home to dad. But there was another option. Fix what Adam did to creation. Overcome where Adam failed. Replace in this humanity that he had partaken of God's design for life, his law, right? His law on the heart and mind, as the new covenant says. He can put it back where it belongs. He can reconcile or restore the species human back to a perfect relationship with God. He he has that choice. Or another way, he can destroy the infection of fear and selfishness. He can do that. But he can only do that if he sacrifices himself. It's the only way to achieve it. I'm going to read to you from Desire of Ages, and I'm going to comment as we go through, starting on page 689. It says, The disciples awakened to the voice of Jesus, but they hardly knew him. His face was so changed by anguish. Again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony, and fainting and exhausted, he staggered back to the place of his former struggle. His suffering was even greater than before. As the agony of soul came upon him, his sweat was as if it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus sought again his retreat and fell prostrate to the ground, overcome by horror of great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. Pause. What's the significance of the idea that his humanity was trembling? Why is that important to recognize? He was afraid to die. So where is the, where is the temptation originating here? In his, huma- in his humanity. It says he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, the Bible says. Every way just like we are. James chapter 1 says, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, which means God cannot be tempted by evil. Divinity cannot be tempted by evil. Christ being tempted, that's humanity being tempted. And nor nor does, God, does God tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. So he was tempted in every way just like we are, and we are tempted by our own desires. Are both scriptures true? Yes or no? Then did Jesus have a humanity that could tempt him? And we see it in Gethsemane. He's anguishing. His human emotions are tempting. What are the emotions pulling him? If he follows his emotions, what action does he take? Who does he save? This is the core temptation, survival of fittest drive. Jesus could experience that temptation like us. And when he faced death in Gethsemane, he had that, that same temptation you get when somebody has put, got your head underwater and drowning you. It comes on so strong. And you've got a knife in your hand. If somebody's drowning you with a knife in your hand, what's your temptation? Yes. Yes. And this, and Christ had this temptation. He had the power to stop it. Yes. In that quote, you, just before the part you stopped, that talked about facing the, the great darkness, 
or emptiness? What was it that... It says Jesus, uh, we're going to, we'll unpack that more in a moment. Jesus sought again the retreat and fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a, of a, of a great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. So Christ was really human. His humanity was facing it. Yes. Would that suggest then that he was facing the second death at that point? The emptiness, the, um, the darkness of nothingness? I, I don't, I don't think so. Because I don't think Christ died the second death. We're going to bring that up. What is the second death? If we define it by, by Scripture, what is it? Lake of fire. Well, lake of fire is one place that causes the second death. That's one of the places that says it. What else? Eternal separation. Eternal separation from God. Non-existence. A destruction of individuality, not just body. Um, Matthew 10, 28, don't fear him. We can destroy the body. We can destroy the soul, psyche. Individuality is also destroyed. None of those apply to Christ's death. Christ was not thrown in the lake of fire. Christ was not eternally separated from Father. Christ was not, did not die a death from which he did not rise again. Christ did not have his individuality destroyed. He, he says, this same Jesus that you saw, he, he's the one who's going up. It's the same, same being. What Christ did, and this is what it says in, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, is it says that by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. So if you have him die in the second death, the, the second death wins. But I have him destroying the second death, and we'll unpack that in this, in this quote as we go on. The darkness I think that he's faced is the darkness of the Father separating his presence from him that he's never experienced before. Yes? Uh, but I would think that he would have to uh, conquer the second death, or that would still be lurking, waiting for victory. What is the cause of the second death? The um, human is um, uh, separated. What causes the separation? Uh, the sin does. The love of a lie. The love of a lie, the sin. Okay, where's the sin? Where is it, where is it found? It's in the individual. Okay, so, and, and, and which, which one of us in here chose to be born a sinner? So how did it get in each one of us? But I thought that's what... Um, so if, if, if this came... To be able to to conquer sin. Yes. Was that he would have that within him. That's what we're talking about right now. So he destroys the infection that causes the separation. Thus he destroys death. He restores the law of love. The Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect. What's the law of the Lord perfect do? It revives the soul. It brings life to the soul. Thus, Christ actually fixed the cause of death. It'd be like he eliminated Ebola virus from, from it, and, and therefore he lives. This is what he did. Let's, let's, let's unpack the rest of the quote, see if it doesn't become clear, because I think she makes it clear in the rest of this quote. He prayed now for his disciples that their faith might not fail. Excuse me. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. The awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Where? Where are we at right now? We're still in Gethsemane. What, why is the fate of the world hanging in the balance here? And what's the choice he's got to make? Surrender himself or go home. Yeah. Okay. Christ might, in the next words, Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressors receive the penalty of his sin. Notice, 
the penalty of his sin. I will go back to my father. What is the penalty of sin? That's what the, the wages of sin is that sin when full grown brings forth death. He who sows to the carnal nature from that nature reaps destruction. Notice she doesn't say, and, and uh, leave the transgressions to receive the punishment of God. She doesn't say this. It's the penalty of sin. This is what sin does. Sin destroys. It separates. It hardens. It corrupts. It corrodes. It'd be like saying someone who res- refuses to drink Drink water. They refuse to drink anything. Will receive the penalty of dehydration and eventual death. That's what they'll receive. That's the penalty of it. Will the Son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin? Notice again, the curse of sin. Not the curse of God. The curse of sin. To save the guilty. The words fall trembling from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times he has uttered the prayer. Three times his humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. What is Christ experiencing here? What's he shrinking from? The temptation to save self. This is what he's going through. He's being pulled, agonizing. Please, I don't want to die. If you've ever been threatened like that, you understand the pull of that. That's the infection. Survival of the fittest. Safe self. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. Pause. Why must they perish if they're left to themselves? Is it because if Jesus doesn't die, God would be unwilling, unwilling, unable, or refuse to, to, to forgive and pardon in some way? That he's legally um, restricted from, from helping us if Jesus doesn't die? Why? Why would we perish? We, none of us would have any receptors for God's love anymore. And we would simply not have the ability to choose or change. Well, e- even, even if we did. Without Christ's mission, there is no remedy to cure the problem. There is no... Remember, I'll, I'll give you this quote. Zarbage 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man, developed a perfect character, and this he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. None of us have a perfect character. It'd be like saying the law of respirations requires breathing. The law requires righteousness. Why does the law require it? Because that's the only way life works. And we, we're out of harmony with the way it works. We can't put ourselves back in harmony. So Christ came to accomplish this for us. He sees the helplessness of man. How are we helpless? We are helpless to cure ourselves. We can't fix it. He he sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of the doomed world rise before him. He beholds the impending fate. And his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression. He will not turn from his mission. He will become a propitiation of a race that has willed to sin. Pause. What's propitiation mean? Which law lens are you looking through? You're looking through the imposed law, system of rules, break a rule, justice requires punishment. Looking through design law, break, you break design law, you're actually damaged and, and broken and, and you need healing and fixing. Which lens do you look through? The word propitiation means conciliate, to conciliate. What's conciliate mean? It means to make favorable. That's what it means. To make something favorable. 
how does Jesus make the race favorable? Is that a hard question? Do you see the connections there? How does he make the race favorable? By what? By offering a blood payment to his father so his father will say, okay, I'm satisfied now? Or by actually fixing in humanity what Adam said did to humanity. So we are restored back to perfect harmony with God and his design for life. We are now set right, justified. The race, the species in Christ set right. We're made favorable. The propitiation, the one who could restore what was broken. His prayer now breathes only submission. If this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Having made the decision, he, notice, having made the decision, he fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. What's happening here? Why is he dying? Has he been beaten? Have they nailed, nailed nails through his hands yet? Has, has he, has he, the crown of thorns been placed on his head? Why is he dying? Yes. And consider him having made the decision throughout his entire life, he exercised his will. Uh, which you can you know, elaborate for days on how that relates to brain science. But he, he, his entire life, exercising his will to live in conformity with the law of his father, with the design law, with his creation law. And when, at that very moment, when he made the most important decision, his will was strong. Will what? And he, he again, exercised it uh, to make the choice to save the rest of us. And so what you're saying is he was in, he was capable of facing this ultimate battle because he had been making proper choices along in smaller decisions. And I would say even in the wilderness, uh, uh, three and a half years before, notice what he was tempted with in the wilderness. These are all temptations about the self. There were temptations about feeding himself with divine power, sensualism, the 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 the, uh, the pleasures of the senses give yourself something to eat you're hungry um, proving yourself bragging bragging and promoting yourself jump off and see the angels that you're 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 amazing and saving himself bow down I'll give you all this and each one of those he 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 said no it's not about me no partially so he fell down dying what's happening here. He, as you say, he chose to love. He chose to surrender. He chose to totally negate that drive to survive. No, I'm not going to identify with that. No, I, I let go. My life's in your hands, Father. I'm not trying to hold on to my life. I'm not trying to kill myself, but I'm not holding on. I'm not trying to save myself. Where were the disciples? to place their hands tenderly beneath the head of their fainting master and bathe that brow marred indeed more than the sons of men. The Savior trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. But God suffered with his son. How did God suffer with his son? Now think this through. How was God suffering? Why did the Father not step in? What is the Father's goal in what Christ is doing here? What is the Father's agenda? What does the Father want to transpire here? What's His mission and His purpose? What is He trying to accomplish? The Father. Restoration of the universe. Restoration. And thus it says, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. For God so loved the world, He sent His Son. See, God has a purpose. 
And his purpose is to fix sinful, broken human beings, to heal them, to eradicate the fear and selfish infection, the carnal nature, if you want to call it that, the survival of the fittest drive, to purge that out of our being and to restore his perfect method and mode into humanity. There's only one way for that to happen. What's the only way for that to happen? A human being has to exercise their free will to perfectly live in harmony with God's design and deny and destroy that infection. Jesus was God made flesh who partook of our humanity, made in a, in our, uh, made um, fully human in every way. And thus, this is God's purpose. Do you see that? God was pleased to allow this to happen, not because he enjoyed Jesus' suffering, but for the same reason that Jesus, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He enjoyed what the cross would accomplish. It would accomplish remedy so that millions could be saved. Angels beheld the Savior's agony. They saw their Lord enclosed by legions of satanic forces. His nature weighted down with a shuddering, mysterious dread. What were the uh, satanic forces doing at this point in history? What were they attempting to do? Encourage? There was silence in heaven. No harp was touched. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host in the silent grief they watched the Father separating His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son? They would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. Why was the Father separating His beams from the Son? I've given you a clue already. Why? There's a reason He was doing this. Was it because the Father disapproved of Jesus? Was it because the Father was angry at Jesus? Was it because the Father was venting wrath and anger on Jesus? Was it because the Father was hurting Jesus? I mean, think about the reasons you're often told under the penal model system. Jesus is our substitute. The sins are placed on him. And God punished Jesus in our place. And God, therefore, and I've read it to you out of many articles, including Ministry Magazine, the review, they have God killing Jesus at the cross, pouring out his power to destroy him, our substitute. Is that why God's beams are being withheld here? Why then? Why is God separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his beloved son. Why? Yes. In the great controversy theme, the issue was the law of God, which means the character of God. Satan's accusation from the very beginning was no one can keep the law, therefore the law has to be changed. Right. Therefore, God had to show to the universe that the law of God can be kept. And Jesus chose to prove it, that he can keep the law of God, the will of God. And he really did prove it, didn't he? But when did he finally prove it? Because God said to Satan, did you see Job, my friend? He is faithful. He keeps the law. He is perfect. And after a while, we don't know how many years or whatever, God restored. But in between, 
it seemed that God was withdrawing his presence from the life of Job, mm -hmm. abandoning him. And Job was crying out, why, why, what happened? I didn't do anything. Why are you withdrawing your blessings from me? Just like God was withdrawing his beams of life, light from Jesus. Why? Jesus showed us in the Garden of Eden that a sacrifice is not a sacrifice unless it is dead. That means there is no chance of changing my mind. In the garden, the first sacrifice was Jesus showing what he will do, not Adam's sacrifice to God. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus came, and as a human being, he says, I am giving myself to humanity, totally. Perfect sacrifice means perfect gift. But perfect, complete, means up to the point of death where I cannot change my mind again. I like it. I like it. Kirsten, you had a comment. Um, I think because Adam was separated from God, so Christ had to put himself in Adam's place. And also, if God was connected with Christ the whole time, then Christ wouldn't have to make any choices. So he has to choose God now. If he's separated from God, he has to... Well, I like where you're going with that as well. Does Christ, as was said all these comments, have to die in order to accomplish his mission? So he can't take it back. It's beyond changing your mind. But also, even more, can he destroy the carnal nature without dying at the cross? No. No. So he has to die. Can, can Christ die if he is continuing to be infused with the beams of light, love, and life-giving glory from the Father? No. The only way for him to die is for the Father to, to pull back his life-giving presence and allow Christ to fulfill his mission and his purpose. Yes. And even that is in harmony with the law of liberty. Yes. God, God restrained his intervention to give Christ up to his choice. Yes, Christ chose to go through the cross. In, in his humanity, with his human brain, he made that choice to go through the cross. It was the only way for, for Christ to partake of this, this, you know, our iniquity, our sinful condition, and love perfectly with his human brain, and then rise again. This is why I think he could predict, he could, understanding God's law so perfectly and how God's laws work, which are design laws, he could predict exactly his resurrection in the same way I can predict what will happen if I let go of this. What will happen? Anybody feel they can predict it? Yes, because you understand the law so well. And he understood the law so well, perfectly restored, it's the law of life. And if you ever read Ellen White's writing, she says over again, the law of love is the law of life for the universe. It's how life is built. Christ perfectly restored it in his humanity. Thus, it was inevitable he would rise again. Tim, yeah. Uh, I don't understand the difference between those who died before or lived before Christ died and those who lived after Christ died. How does this healed character, humanity, apply to the human beings? Okay, that's a great question. You mean like the Enix and the Yeah, and the yeah. Right. right. So, let's say you and I have a time machine. Okay. Can we go back in time and help people with the Black Death with ciprofloxacin? Can we do that if we had a time machine? We could take Cipro back in time and apply it to them. Okay. But we'd have, but only if we have Cipro. 
Having a time machine without Cipro, we may go back in time. We still have nothing to offer them. The Cipro has to exist. So without Christ's completion at the cross, Cipro is the antibiotic that, that would have cured Yersinius pestis, okay, which is the infection that caused the Black Death, the bubonic plague. Okay. okay? Everybody knew that, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> okay. So, so that remedy, that's a remedy. Uh, once it exists in time, if you have the capacity to move through time, you can apply it anywhere in time, if you have that capacity. But if it, don't, if it doesn't exist anywhere in time, it can't be applied anywhere in time. It has to exist first. Without Christ's accomplishment of the cross, there is no perfect human care. It can't be a p- character. It can't be applied to anyone. But once he accomplished his mission in our linear existence, God lives outside time. He made time. He's above and beyond time. He's not restricted to time. He can take what Christ achieved and apply it to any human being, past, present, or future, who's willing to partake of it. And that's what I, so I believe they were, they were saved from the same remedy that we're saved from Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear in Corinthians that the rock from which the Jewish nation drank was Jesus Christ. So he was the saving vehicle back then and the saving vehicle for us today. So my, my view is that God isn't restricted to time and he applies the, the remedy to them. Continuing on with this quote. Oh, by the way, if you notice in this, uh, there's never any punishment inflicted by the Father. Never any legal payment going on to the Father. It's not there. Keep on. The world's unfallen and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict drew to its close. That's interesting words. The conflict drew to its close. Where was it drawing to its close? In Gethsemane. He hadn't even been crucified yet. And we're still battling here 2,000 years later on planet Earth. What's it mean, drawing to its close? Because the decision which ensures the ultimate victory, victory was drawing to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil, the legions of apostasy, watched intently with great, as the great crisis in, in the work of redemption. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ. Thrice repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be. No, no way of escape was found for the Son of God. Why was there no way of escape? Because there's no way to change God's design, His law, the way He's constructed reality. And the only way to fix it was to go through this process. There was no other way. In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened, a light shone forth amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour. The mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hands, but to strengthen him to drink it with the assurance of the Father's love. He came to give power to the divine human supplement. Notice, this did not reduce Christ's suffering. It extended it. He would have died there in Gethsemane, except for this intervention. And because of this intervention, he's now got the crucifixion and the trial and the beatings and the everything else to go through. This did not relieve him of suffering. It extended it. But notice, he, was, he came to give power to Christ. What power do you think he gave him? The next verse is quite profound. He point, Very next verse. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as a result of his sufferings. What power? The power of love. It was the power of love. Jesus saw 
the results of his sacrifice, all who would be saved. And his heart of love for, for those he saved empowered him to go on through that weekend. It wasn't some divine inflow of, of lightning bolt energy. That's why the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He assured him of his father's is greater and more powerful than Satan and that, that his death would result in the utter discomfiture of Satan and that the kingdom of the world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He, would, he told him that he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied for he would see a multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. Christ's agony did not cease, but his depression and discouragement left him. The storm had no wise abated, but he who was its object was strengthened to meet his fury. Strengthened by what? By love. Love for us. Love for you and me. He came forth. And parents, you get this. When you see your children suffering, and, and your love for them empowers you to endure, to deliver them. He came forth calm and serene. A heavenly peace rested upon his blood-stained face. He had borne that which no human could ever bear, for he had tasted the sufferings of death for every person. Where did he taste the sufferings of death for every person? In Gethsemane, not at the cross. Isn't that interesting? Because the battle is internal. It's at Gethsemane that he made his decision to lay his life down and not give in to that survival drive that tempts us. And the rest of the weekend when he's being beaten and crucified and tempted, they try to, re- they try to reignite that, t- that desire in him, but they can't do it. He's extinguished it in Gethsemane. You see the temptations of the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. Come down to the cross. Save yourself. We'll worship you. Save this temptation, trying to reinflame that drive to save yourself, to justify the chance of the mob. But he wouldn't do it. He'd already, he'd already won that victory with, with himself. Yes. It's interesting, you know, um, when you think of the Last Supper, that when he was talking and giving the long discourse to his disciples, when he was washing their feet, we all think of Judas as the traitor, but every single person that he washed their feet that day either uh, abandoned him or, uh, you know, like Judas uh, betrayed him. Everybody... He was alone. Everybody that he worked so hard for left him in one way or another that very same day. And then last, uh, we had sunrise recently at, at Southern and College Dale Church. And the, the Satan portrays in Gethsemane goes around and po- is very powerful, goes around and points to the people that are standing there watching this scene. They don't care about you. They're busy having their own lives. You're wasting your love. And the temptation that not only all of his disciples, was he wasting his love on all of his disciples were going to betray him or abandon him that very same day, or all of us? I mean, I think that's the kind of approach Satan was taking. You're wasting your love on these people. Yeah, and you can see how powerful the temptation could be. Mm-hmm. Last paragraph says, Despite all that is accomplished in our behalf, the plan of salvation did not spare us from earthly sickness and earthly death. Why has the plan of salvation not spared us from the earthly death, the first death, the sleep death? Why is it not? Any thoughts on that? Is there a reason for that? I think it's merciful that we don't live forever. Do you understand those at level four and below, that penal substitutionary theological mindset? 
looks at the Old Testament and uses all those first death experiences as evidence of God punishing. God punished Sodom and Gomorrah. God punished at the flood. God punished Korodath and Abira. God punished the 185,000. God punished, God punished, God... No, none of these were punishments. Even in their own mindset, if they would think about it, does God inflict judicial punishment before judgment? And in their own mindset, the judgment had not yet happened, so how could it be punishment? doesn't make sense. It's, it's incongruent. Um, but it's not punishment. It's what you're saying. It's grace. It's mercy. Think, think it through. What would the world look like today if people today lived like they did at the time of the flood, 900 years? Do you think today we would have less crime, less violence? It'd be a, in fact, at that time in history, when they did live that long, they come to, came to a point there was only one righteous man left on the earth. If people had that length of life, do you think the righteous would dominate the world? And history says, no, the righteous get eliminated from the world. The wicked and violent dominate the world. This was an act of mercy. And not only that, it shortens suffering. It shortens pain. It shortens the, the, the turmoil. If you've ever had patients with chronic diseases that are hurting, you know, this is, this is not an infliction of punishment, the first death. It's an artificial state granted by God's mercy to allow the plan of salvation to be realized. And 2,000 years ago, they weren't even living 900 years. And when righteous Jesus came among them. They couldn't tolerate him but for 33. And after 33, they had to get rid of him. The righteous will not survive, I think, in a world where people live 900 years if it's, in, if it's a world infected with sin. Somebody online wants to make a comment? Well, Dan asked me to share this. Thanks for how you got it right. Take on Mark 14:27. Jesus told them, all of you will run away and leave me, for it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All other versions I've checked thus far have God striking the shepherd. Yes, and it's not God. And it's the, he, she, it was referring to the, the paraphrase, the remedy for those who don't have it. And I, I don't believe that God struck his son at the cross. I believe he was struck by the weight of sin at the cross and by evil men and by Satan. And if you read Ellen White, she says Satan revealed himself as a murderer at the cross by shedding the blood of the Son of God. But most translations do, and much of our own... Theology in, in this organization has people teaching that God struck Jesus at the cross. Sunday's lesson, um, first paragraph, it says, After preaching the Sermon on the Mount, where he described the principles of the kingdom of God, Jesus encountered the kingdom of, of Satan, a cold, dark place filled with decaying people, groaning for redemption, a place whose principles are often contrary to everything for which he stands. At that time... And at that time, one of the greatest examples, just how wretched and fallen Satan's realm had become, could be seen in the disease of leprosy. Though occasionally used as a form of divine punishment, such as in the case of Miriam, in the larger context of the Bible, it's a powerful and horrific example of just what it means to live in a fallen and broken world. And I'm glad they used the, the, the clarifying phrase, one of the greatest, one of the greatest examples of the wretchedness of fallen man, because it's clearly not the greatest example. What are greater examples than leprosy? Well, let me put it this way. Is leprosy sin? Is the callousness and hardness of people's hearts that reject and and condemn others and stone them for no reason, is that sin? Which is, which is, which is a grosser misrepresentation? The, the the physical disease or the, the corruption of the heart? 
You see, it's, it's the callousness and lack of love in the hearts. How, how they treated Jesus. Um, the wretchedness of, of, of humankind. How about the demoniac? This is a much more powerful example of the wretchedness of sin than leprosy. But leprosy is a very powerful metaphor. A metaphor for sin. Because anybody know how leprosy works? It's an infection, it's a disease, and what's it do? What's it damage? Nerves. Sensory nerves. Sensory nerves. It damages sensory nerves, so you can't feel things. You become numb. And thus, once you've damaged your sensory nerves and become numb, all the subsequent damage and destruction and loss of tissue is self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted destruction because you don't have pain fibers and sensory nerves anywhere. You don't feel that you're touching a hot stove. You, you, it's only until you smell flesh burning you pull your hand back. You don't feel the knife as you, that's cutting you, so you cut the tip of your finger off while you're, while you're cutting your, your, your tomatoes. I mean, this is what happens. You don't feel the pain. You're numb to it. What a beautiful, beautiful metaphor for sin. Sin sears the conscience. It makes you numb to what you're doing so that all the rest of the damage that happens to your soul is self-inflicted. It's profound. Third paragraph. It says, The fact that Jesus touched him, the leper, must have sent shivers through the multitude who sat, who saw what had what had happened. Surely, as he did on other occasions, just as in the next recording, healing, Jesus could have spoken the word and the man would have been healed. Why did Jesus touch him, though? Why did Jesus touch him? These are called untouchables, weren't they? Untouchables. And, and to touch a leper in that day would result in what for you? You became unclean. They're unclean and they had to shout. Imagine walking through society. And, and as you walked through society, you were required to shout, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went so people would move away and, they would, and, 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 the, and, the, and the crowds would part for you. Because if someone touched you, they would be considered unclean. You imagine the stigma. And Jesus touches the person. Do you understand that we, we had a very, very limited, short time, brief, minor experience with this untouchableness when, when AIDS and HIV first became known back in the 80s? Do you, do you remember? Even medical professionals were afraid to touch. And do you remember Princess Di? It was quite profound. She touched people with HIV, and it was all over the news. And people were going, how could she touch them? How could she touch them? It was much more, much more profound than that. Some of you remember that. Why did he touch? So why did he touch? Leprosy is sin? Yes or no? It's metaphor for sin. It's object lesson. So Jesus healing, is he trying to heal inside the storybook? Inside the object lesson. He's trying to send a lesson here about the healing. So leprosy represents what? Symbolically represents Jesus touches a person corroded and corrupted with sin and what happens to the sin? What happened to the leprosy when Jesus touched him? So what's the object lesson? What's being taught? Sin has no power over him. But not only that, can you be healed from sin without being touched by Jesus? You see? He didn't speak it. We have to have a personal touch. We have to have a personal touch. 
Now, this is quite profound. My sister emailed me last night, the following, uh, studying this week's lesson. She emailed, Jesus almost always made a point of touching the sick individual when healing. If you look at how much symbolism was used in the Old Testament and think about Christ healing on earth being symbolic for something more, like cleansing from sin, than just showing off power, he was compelled to do all this healing while here on earth because it represented what he is doing for us in the temple of heaven. Taking on our sin, absorbing sin within himself, and cleansing us by the perfection, by his perfection to make us whole again. Thus the need to touch the leper and provide healing. Instead of looking at each story of healing, if you, if you look at them all together in their entirety and ask what was it, what it represented is very clear. He was trying to communicate his true purpose and intervention to heal us from sin. That's right. So what are the implications then, if you think that's true? When you then look at more of the symbolic system of the Old Testament and the blood of the sacrificial lamb represents what? Life. And the life of who? And the life of Christ is sinless or sinful? Which is it? Sinless. Perfect. And so whenever the blood of the sacrificial lamb would touch something, what would it become? Would it become defiled or would it become sacred and holy? Every time you read scripture, the blood of any other animal, any other animal's blood, it defiled it, it became, it became defiled. But the blood of the sacrificial animal, anything it touched, it became holy. That's quite profound, especially if you understand certain ways it's taught in Adventism and the metaphors used and applied to the heavenly sanctuary message and about how sins are being transferred and the sanctuary has been defiled by the confessed sins and the blood carries the sins into the sanctuary and con- contaminates the sanctuary. It, it, it's not consistent. It's a misunderstanding. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an articulation through a false law construct, a level four and below thinking. Design law, you understand that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thus he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless we internalize the word, the flesh, and the life, so we internalize the word, the truth, which sets us free from lies, wins us to trust. We open the heart and trust. The Holy Spirit is poured in, pours his love into our hearts. We become partakers of the divine nature. So no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We are internalizing the, blood, the, the flesh and the blood of Christ. We're being transformed in, in the inner man. So the symbols mean. It was translated into a new symbol, bread and wine. Bread, the bread of heaven. I'm the man of the bread of heaven. The word, the word made flesh. The truth, bring the truth in, wins you to trust, open the heart, you open the heart to trust, you partake of the wine, which is the representative of the blood, this is my blood shed for you, which is his life, we become partakers of a divine age, we get a new heart and right spirit. We're no longer self-driven, we are love-driven. That's what it's all about. Next paragraph, it says, the work of Christ in cleansing the leper from his terrible disease is an illustration of his work in cleansing the soul from sin. Absolutely right. The man who came to Jesus was full of leprosy. Its deadly poison permeated his whole body. The disciples sought to prevent their master from touching him. How many Christians are out there seeking to prevent people from being touched by Jesus? And how do we prevent today? The disciples are active. No, no, don't touch him. Don't touch him. And how are we as Christians preventing people from being touched by God? By the doctrines we teach that hide us from God and separate us from God. Covered by the robe of righteousness so the Father can't see me. When we confess, our sins are covered by the blood and the Father has no record. They're erased out of books. We, we have an advocate that stands between us and God and pleads to, to, to the Father to, to turn His anger and wrath away. How are we? Do, we are not connecting with God. We're separating ourselves from Him. All these metaphors have another beautiful reality, Christ's object lessons. When we 
except Jesus Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires are unified with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of his righteousness. It's not a covering over, it's a transformation within. And they all mean that. So we have to come back to design law. So keep going with this quote here. But in laying his hand upon the leper, Jesus received no defilement. His touch imparted life-giving power. The leprosy was cleansed. Thus it is with the leprosy of sin, deep-rooted, deadly, and impossible to be cleansed by human power. Notice the language here. The leprosy of sin, deep-rooted, deadly, impossible to be cleansed. It doesn't say impossible to be legally pardoned. It's to be cleansed, to be reborn, to be renewed, to be recreated in righteousness, to have the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in, to have circumcision by the Spirit, to have the law written on the heart and mind, to have the mind of Christ, to be reborn. It's all regenerational. And if it's not happening in regenerational reality in your life, then I encourage you to to shift gears and, and ask God for that. Because that's reality. This other thing, it's fantasy. Okay, so Tuesday's lesson, that's what you're bringing up, yeah, Matthew 8, it talks about Jesus calming the storm and casting the demons out of the, of the um, men into the pigs. And it says, what do both of these accounts teach us about the power of God? How can we draw comfort from what we see here about his power, especially as we struggle with things so much greater than ourselves? And this is a good point. To, to, what, how do we understand God's power? How is power used in these circumstances? Remember we talked before, real, real quick, the different types of power. There is coercive power. It's a power that, that beasts of, of, of revelation, the, the human governments use. You better drive the right speed limit or you'll end up in this room on a different day of the week. <laughs> coercive power, threats of punishment. This is what human states do. Where does coercive power originate? Anybody know? The origination of that use of power. Satan's government. Coercive power, according to Ellen White, is found, quote, only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. God does not use coercive power. Many Christians teach under level four thinking, God does use, justice required, he will have to punish, he has to inflict pain. That's all a lie. It's infection. Coercive power. So coercive power, God, inducing power, power bribes. Bribe you, pay you good. Where does this power originate? This is Satan's power again. He tried it on Christ. I'll give you all these cities. He tried it on Job. Or he accused God of doing that to Job. Okay? Deceiving power. And there's power in deceiving. You get somebody to believe a lie, you've got power over them. Where does that power originate? Again, in Satan. All three of these originate in Satan, and God doesn't use them. The power of love. Of course, that originates in God, and that, that has transforming power. The power of truth and love combined is the power of being sealed. Because love alone can be broken. What can break the power of love? Lies. Lies believed can break the power of love. That's what happened in heaven. That's what happened in Eden. That can happen in relationships now. But truth and love combined, the, the spirit... Spirit is the spirit of truth, the spirit of love. And at Pentecost, I saw two tongues, the tongues of truth and love. When you have truth and love combined, that power is impenetrable. But there's one other type of power that we didn't talk about in previous lessons, restraining power. Restraining power. When an intelligence who has superior understanding in a circumstance intervenes in the free will choices of another to alter outcomes. Examples, parent restraining a child running for a street. Healthcare officials quarantining a person infected with Ebola. Mental health professionals forcibly restraining and medicating a violent psychotic patient. God holding back evil forces, restraining 
the principalities and powers of darkness, uh, benevolent societies incarcerating those bent on exploiting and hurting others. These are all examples of restraining power. Does God use restraining power? Yes, he uses restraining power. But when you use restraining power, restraining power is used for the least amount of, of restraint for the shortest amount of time possible. When you put somebody in restraints in the hospital, you monitor them constantly, and the first moment they're capable of having some self-governance, you remove the restraints and you set them free. It's all about restoring them back to self-governance. That's the use of it. But there comes a time, and we don't have time to talk about it, but I'll leave this, you used to think about this. Think about Revelation 7 and the angel coming from the four, from the east telling the four angels holding the four winds, hold, 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 restrain, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead, and then they let loose. Why do they let loose? What are the reasons people stop restraining? What happens when you're holding something in check and you stop, stop restraining it? What are the consequences of that? Think, get a lot to think through on that. And how's God's, God's actions there? He was talking about power and how he uses it and the limitations on power. What God can never do is he can never get what he wants. His goal can never be accomplished by the exercise of might and power. Because what he wants is he wants people to love and trust him. And you can't get love and trust by threats and coercion. You can never get it. You win it by truth and love. If God were to use his power to overwrite your individuality and write in his methods of doing things, you would not exist. Your personhood would be destroyed. The only way for you as an individual to be saved is to actively choose to voluntarily participate with him. As Paul says in Romans, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. You must let go your hold on the lies. You must embrace and hold to the truth. And that relationship, you're transformed in that process. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and we are amazed at how you have designed us. Thank you for for Jesus who you sent to accomplish what no human being could accomplish to reveal the truth about you to set it straight in the minds of the intelligences throughout the universe but more than to reveal the truth to fix what adam broke to establish your law back into the species human to develop a perfect character to eradicate the fear and selfishness to rise again in a humanity purified and exalted and lord we ask now your spirit will come and take all that christ has achieved and reproduce it in us so it's no longer i that live but you live in me lord we pray in your holy name amen